Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Well, I'm back this week with another panel-type episode, just like last week when I had three creators who worked on Bitch Planet Triple Feature. Well, today I have on three creators, the three amigos working on Aftershocks, The Normals. I have Adam Glass, the writer of the book. He has worked on such shows as Criminal Minds, Cold Case, and Supernatural. He also has a creator-owned book published by Aftershock Comics, Rough Writers. Also on the show is writer-artist extraordinaire that I also interviewed at Baltimore Comic-Con in 2016, Dennis Calero. Quick plug, you can check out that interview on my website, creatortalks.com, where I speak with Dennis while I was working for Word of the Nerd, the pop culture website. Good folks there, one and all. Dennis has written and drawn for many different publishers. Block off some time so you can go look up all of his work. It's going to take you a while. And also joining us on the show is editor-in-chief of Aftershock Comics, Mike Martz. Now, if that's not confidence in a book, having the editor-in-chief appear on the show to talk about it, well, I don't know what is. And if you like what you hear in this interview and on the podcast, you can reach me at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod to follow who's going to be up in future shows and just to send some feedback. Always appreciated. And you can listen to my previous podcasts on creatortalks.com. They're all posted there. But we're talking about the normals this episode, so let's get to it. Adam, Dennis, and Mike, here now on Creator Talks. My guests today are collaborating on the creator-owned series, The Normals, published by Aftershock Comics. The creator and writer of the series, Adam Glass, has worked on such television series as Criminal Minds, Cold Case, and Supernatural. For comics, he has co-wrote Luke Cage Noir, wrote Deadpool, Suicide Squad, and one of my favorites, Rough Riders, through Aftershock. The artist of the series needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. Dennis Calero. Notable works include, among my favorites, X-Men Noir, Dr. Solar, Man of the Atom, Masks for Dynamite, The Suit, Assassin's Creed Templar, and now Doctor Who. And now, of course, with Aftershock, The Normals. He's the artist in the series. And how important is the series? Well, Editor-in-Chief Mike March is also joining us today on the call. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank Hi. you. What's going on, brother? Great to have all of you here. It's a great turnout. I didn't expect to get everyone, including the Editor-in-Chief. So this is great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honored, sir. Let me begin uh, with Adam and Dennis. Both of you have a connection. Uh, both of you worked in some way on the Marvel Noir series. Uh, Dennis had done the trade collection cover of Luke Cage Noir. I think that was your art there on it, wasn't it? Yes, and I've done uh, – I'll take your word for it that it was on the trade. I did alternate uh, covers for all of the initial noir titles. Um, Luke Cage, X-Men Noir, of course, um, Wolverine Noir, and Daredevil Noir, and Punisher Noir. So that was, that was a very busy year. Uh, my question to both of you is, when did you first meet and decide to collaborate for your own creator-owned series, The Normals? You know, I, I was always a fan of Dennis's. I, you know, we had done this, uh, you know, like he said, I remember seeing his cover. I always loved that sort of noir style of his. So when I turned around, and I didn't really know Dennis, um, but when I brought up to Mike and we started talking about the book and the style, uh, it was one of the first people Mike brought up, you know, and I said, oh, no doubt, you know, like I, I've always been a fan of Dennis's. So he was nice enough to take my call. And uh, and then, you know, we bribed him with some money and, and booze. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So <laughs> here we are. <laughs> the only yeah. only thing that you can pay me in is money, which is <laughs> then, then, I, then I then I used to buy booze. <laughs> what I do? Uh, no, it, it was very cool because I had been in touch with Mike. Uh, I, I've known Mike for many, many years. Uh, work with Mike at DC Comics. Uh, the first person I worked with at DC Comics, and uh, he uh, came to me with this. I've been sending him work, just keeping keep, as as freelancers we're supposed to do, keeping our friends and our associates up to uh, speed with our work. What I've been doing with Titan and different people. And uh, I think we had even been talking about something happening later in the year. And then very shortly after that, he said, uh, well, you want to work on something now? And uh, the answer to that question, as every freelancer knows, is yes. (laughs) 
money now is better than money later. Uh, and then we talked about the concept and uh, I knew Adam's work. I was a fan of his TV stuff as well. Um, we had sort of a TV. I'd always been interested. In, I, I worked in television a little bit. I'm going to sneak that in there. I was always interested uh, in working with people who are familiar with that industry because it's sort of a different sort of a different approach to visual storytelling. And I think the two are very linked, comics and television and film. The three of them are very linked. Um, and so he had this concept that was uh, drew from all the stuff that I'd been, uh, I've always loved, um, Blade Runner, uh, and, and most recently Westworld, but sort of the idea of artificial life and what does that mean and, and then what are the connections with family. And Adam's a father, so am I. And we sort of talked about that as well, about what, what creates a familial bond, not just being about uh, blood or, or familial sort of genetic connection, but uh, choice, caring, that sort of emotional connection and everything about the series just called to me. Uh, and I thought it was really, it was something that I could really sink my teeth into and, and really, um, cause it, it, drawing a comic, I don't know if you guys know, it's hard. It's not, not an easy thing to do, uh, every day, uh, draw five or six panels a day, you know, every day. And so it's nice when you can work on something that you feel a personal connection to. And I, you know, and I think, when that happens, it, it comes through in the work. And Adam, you said this was a very personal story for you. And this piqued my curiosity when I saw that. And I mean, obviously it's personal because it's it's your book, it's your creation. But what else about it makes it personal? Is it having the perfect life and then everything's upended? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, I think I said this at a recent convention. I think as writers, you're either writing the things you aspire to or that you're writing to your fears. Um, and I definitely am writing to my fears here. You know, I've reached a point in my life after... You know, as I'm sure many of us artists feel after struggling so long, you finally get to a place where you're like, oh, I, you know, and I, I use the song, rightfully so, from the Talking Heads. You know, how did I end up with this beautiful wife and this beautiful life and this beautiful house? And then all of a sudden you're trying to sit there and go, I don't want to lose it. How do I keep it? You know, um, it's the old, you know, I become king. Now, how do I stay king? And uh, so the things that keep me up at night, not a lot, but a little bit here and there. You know, you also have to enjoy where you are in your life and, and live in the moment and the present and not just the fear of it. But if I dig deep, my biggest fear is losing it all. So writing about that and writing about somebody who's fighting to keep his family together, you know, our character, Jack Normal, who, you know, finds out, you know, that everything that, you know, he has believed to be his life is actually, you know, a program you know, uh, it, what would you do? How much would you fight to keep your life? No matter how mundane or boring or great or awesome or, you know, whatever, I think you'd fight a lot, you know, to keep both your life and your family together. Because even though it might be a program to somebody else, it's the only thing you know, it's your reality. So playing with all those ideas fascinated me. And uh, was it, you know, something I always wanted to do. And, you know, the kids are named after my kids. You know, the wife and relationships, definitely the, my relationship with my wife. And uh, so when I'm writing it, it's literally like me going down. It's like, how did, what if my family was in a sci-fi story, you know, uh, and get, got this information? So I'm really drawing from, you know, uh, my personal experience, which, you know, sometimes when you write comics, you really don't get to do. It's more about your imagination. And this is a mixture of both. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly sympathize with the characters because it reminds me a bit of Westworld, the new series that came out from HBO last year, or I guess it was this year. I really felt something for the hosts that wanted to have some sense of normalcy and some life for their own and have their own life and not just be rebooted and reset. And there's some elements of that in the story. Yeah, I think when you do any kind of these stories, and, you know, I mean, of course, you know, obviously it takes a while for a comic book to come out. But the minute I started Westworld, I remember sending it to Mike and going, uh-oh. You know, like these are some tropes that I think we all go under and we, we do. So I recognize those same similarities. I think the difference here is, you know, mine is about a family and sort of and I think Dennis was hitting on this earlier, too. And because of it, I think it adds even a more interesting personal thing, because I think none of us can relate to being a host, but all of us can relate to having a family. And what if all of a sudden you woke up tomorrow and found out that that family and what you thought was the truth wasn't, you know what I'm saying? And so what would you do? So I, I, in some ways, I just feel like there's a, a yes, we 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 carry some of the same water but i think at the same time this hopefully to me i think is a little more easy to connect to in some ways you know so it's a long way of saying i agree with you um 
One facet of the story that I really think about and find interesting is, you know, one of one one of the um, points is that you know, well, we're, we're programmed to be a family. Does that make us a family? But and but if you think about it, you know, I have a daughter. I'm I'm programmed to love and protect her as well. It's genetic. It's 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 what nature has ingrained in us. Uh, because you know, if we didn't obviously if we didn't have it. Um, then the, the bloodline wouldn't go on uh, you, if you don't have that genetic. Um, you're, you're compelled genetically to do these things, um, and when you're if you're a thinking person, uh, it's, it's it's interesting and uncomfortable in a good way to wonder well where is that line? I mean, the, these characters are robots. Um, in a, in, a, in a similar way, we are biological robots program to follow um certain instincts and often i feel we 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 try out of our sense of ego and and sort of our sense of 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 individuality i think that we we ascribe more to our own sort of free will than i think personally is is realistic um and those kinds of themes are reverberating in Adam's work, which is such a pleasure to work on. Yeah, I have to say, Dennis, too, that your style on this particular story works so well because it's very realistic. Uh, and it helps put it more in our world, the real world, versus someone else who might be more of a stylized kind of cartoonist or artist. And it would look more like a fictitious world. So you on the book, I think, really does work so well in this kind of story. I appreciate that. I think, um, you know, at the same time, I'm also doing stuff for Marvel uh, that's Guardians of the Galaxy related. And that's very spacey and very weird. And so it's, it's um, you know, a- actors, I have a lot of friends who are, who are actors. And, and one of the differences, I think, is, is they're both, obviously, we're both creative artists and we're both creating characters. To a certain extent, actors are limited by their physicality. If you're a man and you're 50, you're not going to play a, a you know, you're not going to play a 14 year old girl in the next coming of age story. You're you're limited by your by your physicality um, to some extent. And but as a comic book artist, uh, at, at least most of the ones that I like have a certain uh, range and flexibility that lets them um, lets them draw something that is more realistic or more uh, dark or detective oriented what you would sort of typically associate uh, in terms of iconography with that kind of work but can also draw sort of at least in their own way sort of whiz bang far out stuff um, and certainly and I uh, you know uh, when I was working on X-Men Noir I was also doing stuff for Lego and doing little Lego Batman stuff um, and uh, that sort of we, we forget artists can have that flexibility sometimes and there's more choice Involved, and I don't mean just to make it sound like I'm refuting what you're saying or that I'm I'm uh, offended because it's absolutely not the truth in any way. Um, but I do want to point out that my approach, there has been a certain level of a certain amount of it comes naturally, but a certain amount of it is also choice and also considered um, looking at in terms of film, looking at films that I think Adam and I are both referencing. But also looking at comic book artists like Steranko or Al Williamson or Gene Colan, who I feel also would have been a really great fit uh, for a book like like this. So, I just, so that so there's a certain level of choice. Or maybe going back to my earlier point, I think there's a choice, but there really isn't. <laughs> yeah, and, and just to throw in there, I mean, the thing that I love about your art and what you're doing in this book is the things that are happening in the shadows. You know, the things that are happening sort of like, you know, in between the moments. You know, like when they're, you know, in the first book, when the couple are sitting there, it's like you never really see their face. It's all from behind, you know, but they're leaning in, they're close to each other. They're having this conversation about their son and what they right. just saw, you know? And to me, I, I think sort of sometimes what we all forget and what I think you do so well, Dennis, is our imagination of what's happening is 10 times stronger than actually showing them what's happening because we've all had that place where we've been and we've done those things. You know, the, the way you played everything in the eye when the kid falls and then you switch it to the POV of the kid when the dad finally comes up on him. Like I've seen a lot of people in the reviews write about that. And I remember when I first saw it, I thought it was really good. And I, I think we planned that together, but I think your art really brought it to life. Well, so- I love you too. Um, <laughs> I, I, 
I uh, yes, it is absolutely. You know, it comes from a co-planning thing and it starts with the script, the blueprint, and then you you go from there. And we've been Adam and I uh, with with, and I want to emphasize with with uh, Mike's input and Adriano's wonderful colors. Uh, it's nice to be on a project where there can be some back and forth and some discussion and some correction and some and some adjustment after the, after the fact that it's not a, a pure. Um, uh, uh, like you make cars. Uh, the, um, the word is escaping me right now. It's not. A, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, like a assembly line. It's not, it's not a pure assembly line that goes forward in one direction very quickly, and everyone does their little part separate, independently, and that's it. Um, but yeah, we forget. I think not, not to turn this into a, a long statement about comic book art in general. I think comics, in general, tend to be drawn to be. Uh, clarity, 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 and clarity is important, but there's also a time when an artist should choose to be unclear. And for example, in 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 Adam, in that scene that Adam cited, my sense of it, and I'm not saying that this is an overly cerebral process, but it, it's partially intuitive, it's partially cerebral. Um, that was a choice about if you're behind the characters when they're having this moment, it feels like it's more to me. It feels like it's more intimate. Like you're you're observing an, a private moment rather than if the camera, or so to speak, the point of view was in front. Then it's just happening uh, by putting the the camera in a sense behind uh, the characters. Again, we have that sense of we're 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 watching a private moment. Uh, that's that that is the way that I think. The other member of the team, uh, Adriano Augusto, you mentioned, did the coloring. Now, Dennis, usually I've often seen you do your own coloring in your book. Your plate's full and you're spinning a lot of plates at the same time. Um, (laughs) So, Mike, what was the reason? You know uh, me well. (laughs) Yes, I know you're very, very busy. So, Mike, um, so was Adriano the the immediate first choice for this uh, series? I think Adriano uh, was certainly towards um, the, uh, the head of the pack. And he had been someone who had been really aggressively trying to work with Aftershock and had been showing uh, his new color work to us uh, over the months, had gotten better and better time went on. And eventually, um, you know, there was the right assignment for him. I thought that, you know, his particular color palette would work really well with Dennis's style of drawing and illustrating um, you know, we were, we were really looking for something that would capture that noir feel, something that would feel like a, a Twilight Zone episode on, on, in a comic book. And, and Adriano's colors, I think, were the, the perfect complement to Dennis's illustrations. Oh, yeah. No, it's beautiful. It fits so well. And Adriano is so kind and so open and, and, and uh, is, is great and, want, and wants to continue to improve, as every good artist, including myself, I think should, should, that should be the attitude. Um, and, and I let him do his thing. And if something, if I have a feeling that something should be a little bit different, he's, he's so easy to work with and, and it's just been stellar. So how many issues? I see there's four solicited so far. How far out have you uh, worked the series? I'm, I'm currently drawing issue four. It's, uh, six issues, uh, of which five are written and I'm in the process of finishing up, you know, six, um, and it's interesting because you – I actually did something I never do. I'm usually a guy – I plan everything, and then I just write it. And I know in this book where I wanted to end, and I wrote the first five books pretty feverishly and right after each other. And I said, you know what? I'm actually not going to write six. I'm going to take a moment and step back, and I'm going to wait. And I'm going to see how the book feels and how it moves forward and see the art and see everything before I write six. So I just recently jumped into six and it's a new process for me, uh, but I'm glad I did it because I think I would have maybe not have thought of things or, you know, until I saw Dennis's art and I saw the way, you know, Adriana was going to color it. Um, and now that I did, I think it's actually going to make the ending even stronger. And, and ho- if everything goes well, hopefully maybe we'll do some more beyond six. You know, it's all up in the air. Take your time. Don't rush it. I, I can appreciate that. <laughs> Great. No, really, I do appreciate that one. Creators and the publishers work together, and they can do it as a mini series, and then come back later. And it's—I've been saying this in the podcast—it's fine. You know, if you know it's going to come later, as long as you get that complete mini series, it's the same sure. art team too. Really helps a lot to keep the the band together. The next one comes along, you're going to have that audience there again. They will come back. 
it's an interesting conundrum. I think that uh, I think that as from being a fan from a young age and reading comics all throughout my life, I I, def, I personally feel uh, think rather that comics have become a lot more work intensive. I mean, in terms of when you when you look at a comic from 1985, and then you look at Brian Hitch's work. And you're just like, there's like three times to four times the work in every page in a modern, in a modern comic. It's, they require a lot of labor and a lot of work. Um, and also because the audience is more sophisticated, so they demand more, and that's fine. Uh, how, how, th- that, that has obviously been a challenge in terms of creating monthly comics. And, and like you, Chris, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm used to, as an old school fan, I'm used to, I was reading comics that had the same team on for years. For years, and uh, when does that happen these days? I mean, when is that possible? So it's certainly uh, a conundrum. Well, I think the fans, and I know I, for one, have adapted to that idea of teams turning over fairly quickly. And I mean, you understand for the team themselves, for the individual creators, they want to stretch their skills. They want to try something new. They don't want to be on one book forever. And there are some that there are teams that have been on there for quite a while, which is is kind of a unusual thing nowadays. But I do appreciate the miniseries that keep everyone together. Uh, just want to talk a bit about some of your other work, each of you. Now, Dennis, I know you have coming up, I think in the next week, you're doing an issue of Doctor Who for Ghost Stories. I know it's not an Aftershock book, but I just wanted to toss it out there. And- sure, sure. It was a book that I actually illustrated uh, late last year. It came out digital first. And I think to, I think very shortly the actual, uh, or today actually, I think, the actual um, 22-page story came out in its entirety in, in print. And it looks great. The, the, the color, the printing came out fantastic, and Titan always does a great job. Have you been a fan of Doctor Who, um, the original series, oh, the classic and course. the new one? Of course. I remember Doctor Who as being this weird show. When I was like in third or fourth grade watching Doctor Who late on PBS, it was uh, Tom Baker and just yep. this strange little weird science fiction show that was kind of goofy, kind of funny, and kind of really scary in a good way, that the way that little kids like to be scared. Um, and it always had this continuous thread of optimism and courage that, uh, that even though I, even though I love star Wars as a little kid, and I love star Trek. There was something about Dr. Who's in inflappable optimism in the face of death and terror. Um, that was that, that resonated and felt right. Uh, and feels increasingly absent in in current media, where um, heroes want to murder everyone. <laughs> I'm a superhero, thus I shall murder this person. Um, so yeah, so big fan from way back. How about you, Adam? Oh, me too. I mean, look, you know, I, I as you know, I did a show called Supernatural, and I sit in the Supernatural room. And oh, that say, show. <laughs> I think I've heard of it. <laughs> it's been on for a uh, thousand years, but um, you know, we used to sit in the room and talk about Doctor Who all the time. And much like Dennis, I grew up in New York and I remember watching it on PBS as a kid. And my mom going, "What the heck are you watching?" You know, is that or Benny Hill? Boy, <laughs> <laughs> well, they can and, combine the uh, two. Yeah, combine the two. Or Abbott and Costello on WPIX on Channel sure. One. Yeah, yeah. For games. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, which, by the way, so all those great monster, you know, uh, Abigail Stone, Frankenstein. And oh, I love that. Yep. So <laughs> uh, really all the building blocks to my writing, you know, and, and sort of a career in, in, in genre. So, you know, I, I, too, loved all that stuff. I, I remember and tell me if I'm wrong, but when I was growing up a kid, it was sort of all that black and white still stuff from the 60s that I, I remember them playing on PBS. Um, yeah, they rewrite uh, some of that stuff, too. Yeah. Um, but but uh, so yeah, always a big fan of Doctor Who. I mean, I'm just blown away that it's still going as strong as it is, and that my son, you know, who's you know 13, watches it, you know, and and all the different incarnations of it and everything like that is just it's just unbelievable, you know. Um, so uh, and that and the Doctor Who theme every time I hear it, it just makes me smile and, and brings yeah. me back. Uh, I'm with with you. So yeah, very cool. By the way, I'm, I, I have to admit, I'm a little jealous that. Uh, that Dennis is doing that, and uh, I didn't get a call from the Doctor Who people. So call me, man. I'm here. I'm I, can, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can make some phone calls. 
I can see a series happening. Mike, do you have any memories of Doctor Who? You know, Doctor Who is probably, you know, one of the only shows, you know, it, both these guys, you know, were talking about, you know, watching it growing up. And I, I, I know that it was on. Um, and for whatever reason, I wasn't watching that show. I was more, I, I was watching uh, Battle of the Planets and uh, sure. Star Blazers and, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, the monster movies that uh, PIX would would show on, uh, you know, Sunday mornings and Sunday afternoons. Um, but Doctor Who I didn't get acquainted with until much later in life, you know, probably like the last 10 years or so when it had its resurgence. And, um, you know, since then, it's become such a fun, cool show to watch and is really kind of like a, I don't know, like a modern day Twilight Zone with, with you know, humor and, and like Dennis said, kind of some, you know, goofball aspect to it. Um, I don't know, which is just... Uh, it's very appealing. Yeah, I like the old series and the new series, and I I got hooked on the uh, old series when I was in college back in the eighties, and because my roommate liked it, and I was like, "What is this?" And I had seen it before when I was a few years prior to that. Saw so the Tom Baker on PBS, and I just didn't quite connect with it. And then I started watching the Fifth Doctor at the beginning of his run, and with all the companions running around in the TARDIS, I was like, "Oh, yeah." Okay. Peter David was really cool. Yeah, I really liked him a lot, and uh, when actually I saw him in person once up in Philly during a convention, the only doctor I've seen in person, and uh, I enjoyed that, so I kind of got into it, and I started binging on it, like it would be on Friday nights in the Omnibus editions where they'd show all four, six, or seven episodes as one story, and then I'd watch the next night on another PBS station, and uh, one of the things I like about it so much, especially the old ones, if you like film and restoration work, is a lot of those old black and whites that were mentioned were missing they're gone they were wiped on videotape they were just taken right. out and only the film negatives remained in a lot of cases you know the black and white film negatives and they've been able to restore a lot of them and use this vidfire technique where if you have two frames of film they kind of interpolate what the film frame in between those would look like so it has a more fluid motion to it so they can almost restore the videotape look to it it is amazing to watch um, the restoration team has been incredible and all that stuff's out on DVD, and there's still episodes missing that just got wiped, and they've never been recovered. But every once in a while, there'll be a TV station in Africa or right. the Middle East, and they'll find one. Um, and that's—I hope they still find more. Um, so I, I find that just fascinating. Now, um, Adam, you're working on another aftershock book, and I really like this one because it has a historical tie to it. Yeah, it's a fictional story, but it has all these characters. This is um, speaking of Rough Riders, and you've got. Patrick Olaf doing the art on that. And you've got Teddy Roosevelt, Annie Oakley, Harry Houdini, Jack Johnson, Thomas Edison, all in the series. And it's great. And this is, it's on a second run now, second miniseries. Yes. Yeah. I've been really fortunate enough. I mean, um, I appreciate the shout out. It's, it's a great book. It's a lot of fun. Patrick, Gabe and Sal and I, you guys were talking about teams being together and we've been together now for two years. So we're feel very fortunate and lucky, uh, to be able to all do a book together and to keep it going. And we hope that we'll even get a third chapter of it, but uh, a huge history fan always have been my whole life. Uh, my joke always with my wife is when this Hollywood thing's over, I'll move to Oregon and teach history at some like little university. Um, uh, or when she leaves me and takes all my Hollywood money, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, at the end of the day, it's it's always been sort of you know it's it was it was one of those things where like all words worlds collide. I uh, love history. I love Teddy Roosevelt. I love Harry Houdini. I love boxing. So I love Jack Johnson. Uh, and sort of this idea to do this book and this idea and steampunk and history and sort of mixing it with alt history. And uh, it was really fortunate when Mike and I, who actually met uh, when I was also at DC, and uh, you know, one of the things that I don't think Mike gets a lot of credit for, but you know, I had to pitch Mike, you know, that Harley Quinn should be on, you know, uh, the Suicide Squad, and a lot of people were like, no, no, no. And I remember me and Pat, or uh, you know, Patrick McCollum, who was my editor, calling and talking to Mike about it, and Mike said, let me see, you know, I like it. And he got his permission. And, you know, there would be no Lee Quinn in the Suicide Squad movies or in the books without Mike Martz. So uh, an unsung hero in that yeah. place. But, Appreciate um, that. But when he uh, but when he turned around and he started Aftershock, uh, you know, and him and, and, and John and Lee and Joe Pruitt, 
I met with them uh, actually at a bar, outside bar at the Marriott Hotel during uh, Comic-Con. And they said, well, what do you want to do? And I pitched them Rough Riders. And when I was done, I was like, and I have another pitch. They're like, no, that's the pitch. That's the book. We want to do it. And it was like, really? And they were like, yeah. And so I then had to rush home and actually figure out what the damn book was. Um, but you know, <laughs> one of those things, like, I'm sure you, we've all been there. You sell it and you're like, oh, OK, you really want to do it. Now i got to figure out how to do it. But I got to say, the story came so easy to me, you know, and not a, hey, pat on my back. But it was like all the books I had read and all the history I had studied all my life sort of paid off. And I found a way to sort of do it and figure out a way to put all these characters together and tell this alt story. But also by keeping a lot of true history, I mean, all the characters are really true to who they were in that time. There's a lot of things that happen in those stories that really are happening. You know, in the second chapter, McKinley is really shot at the Buffalo World's Fair, the World's Fair that was in Buffalo. It was anarchist, you know, like there's so many truths and real things that are happening in them. So, uh, man, I just love doing the book and it's fun. And I always say if I could get paid to write something like that every day, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. If I could just step in real quick and just, you know, mention a little thing about Rough Riders. I mean, San Diego Comic Con is always a great time because, you know, we get to meet up with the writers and the artists and, and hear new ideas. And, and, and now San Diego's kind of been become a tradition for Aftershock and Adam, where, you know, two years ago he pitched Rough Riders and last year he pitched The Normals. Uh, but Rough Riders. Oh, you mean, was, I, you mean I got to come up with a third pitch now? Yeah, <laughs> man. Yeah. Yeah. Pressure's on. We only got a month. Uh, but Rough Riders was one of those projects. It, it's, it's a very rare thing for a publisher and editors to hear a pitch and not only instantly decide you want to pursue the project, um, but but for the entire company to kind of unanimously agree that this is a project that we want to do without speaking to one another. Uh, because Adam pitched the project and we all just kind of like looked and nodded at one another and as if to say, yes, this is something we want in our creative arsenal. Um, so that's kind of how special a project Rough Riders was, uh, uh, you know, when it was pitched to us. Well, Mike, Aftershock has really taken off since you first started back in April 2015. And you've had a lot of strong, really quality books come out. So to you, what is unique about Aftershock compared to other companies that publish creator-owned books? What is it that makes Aftershock special and different from those others? Uh, a few different things. Uh, I mean, right from the start, we wanted to institute a family atmosphere, uh, a place where creators could feel comfortable coming to tell their stories, uh, to feel like they were part of a team, uh, to, you know, to, to work in an environment where they didn't feel like they were waiting for phone calls, you know, waiting for emails to be replied, um, you know, where they were getting rough treatment. We, you know, we, we wanted to establish a real fun environment, a family environment. Um, you know, and beyond that, we, we wanted to put the story first and, that's not always an easy thing. Sometimes we hear some great pitches, but maybe the story just isn't right. Um, and so we've been very selective, very picky with um, the projects that are presented to us and what we accept and what we decide to approve and publish. Um, and, you know, making that a difficult part of the process, I think, has has paid off for us because what we what we have in in just a year and a half of publishing are – 21, 22 different projects, and each one is different from, you know, very different from from the other one, and so many unique perspectives and just fantastic ideas, and I think just the the best ideas from from the best creators in the business, um, and and each one, I, you know, I'm super proud of, and you know, that's that's a difficult thing to do to put that type of catalog together in, in just a year and a half. Um, and, and yet, you know, we've been patient with the, the acquisition of stories and it's really paid off for us. Speaking as a writer who, you know, and, and I know Dennis feels the same way because we've had these conversations, you know, it's just great to be in a place, uh, where the table has been set in such a way that, uh, the respect of the storytelling and the art, and the exploration of it and the allowing sort of experiment and get there and 
and and be free to create these kind of stories we want to tell. It's so rare. Uh, so I can't thank Aftershock enough. You know, um, I, I say it all the time. They sort of ruin you uh, if you try to go anyplace else because <laughs> uh, it's, it's a rare thing in the business. And working with Mike is a real pleasure specifically because of, A, the environment that they create, which is, which is um, you know, they, they set the table to allow you to do your best work. And, and the criticism from Mike is always honest and it's always kind. Um, and it's always comes from a place where you know what he wants is what you want, what everyone wants, which is to do the best possible book that you can that you can make, um, rather than any sort of other kind of agenda or 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 what have you, whatever's happening in the company or whatever. There, Mike's only goal is to make the book as good as possible, and it's such a pleasure to work with him. Yeah, you guys are saying that because you're ready to pitch something at San Diego. I know, I know how it works. <laughs> Quiet. <laughs> some ideas i gotta advance in this industry Help me out. Help me out. <laughs> i wanted to ask you about a little film that came out last week wonder woman and i want to know if you all had a chance to see it yet i have not those of you who've had i just wanted to ask um as a writer editors filmmakers what are your thoughts on it we don't have to go into spoilers just general impressions dennis you want to go first I, I'm going to step carefully, and Chris, you know this about me, because I, I work with DC, and I'm ultimately incredibly respectful of the people that I work with. So I, I never try to be like, and I, you know, I'm a fan too, so I have my thoughts about everything that I read or watch or whatever. But I, you know, we've had this discussion before. I think it's inappropriate to to say certain things about certain things. I loved it. I thought that it was the it was the DC movie that I've always wanted, that I've wanted since Superman 1 and 2. Um, and I would like to see more of this. I thought uh, Chris Pine was terrific. I thought the all the stuff on the Amazon Island was letter perfect. And um, I think that the director did a absolutely wonderful job. Um, and I, uh, the biggest compliment you can give a film, I think, is that uh, if Wonder Woman 2 came out tomorrow, I would be seeing it. So there you go. All right. <laughs> I agree with everything that you're saying, and I'll even take it a step further, which is, you know, I, and I'm sure, you know, because we all have kids here, um, you start to see things through your kids' eyes. Yep. You know? Um, and I went with my 16-year-old daughter and my 13-year-old son. And my both of them walked out of their so inspired, you know what I'm saying? Especially my daughter, who, you know, I think it's so great. And, you know, this isn't a BPC. This is just my daughter. Like, I just think it's great for her to have role models and to see that girls can kick ass, you know? And uh, they, and by the way, didn't bother my son at all that it was a girl. He came out of there 13 punching things and humming, you know, the music <laughs> and, and all that stuff. So it was pretty, pretty amazing. Um, and so I, I really did walk out of there sort of happy for them and feeling inspired that, you know, they were inspired. Uh, and I agree, like growing up with the hero and knowing it, like, I just thought it was a lot of fun. You know, we forget that comic books, a lot of fun. fun. They don't have to always make some big statement and, you know, it was really about love. I agree. Chris Pine was never better. Um, never better. And, and yeah, because I don't think he had to carry it. Like, I think, you know, it was like he had someone to play off of and I just thought he was amazing and great in it. And I think she is like, you couldn't have found better casting, right? I mean, she is beautiful. She is strong. She's a good actress. Uh, like I just believed it, you know, uh, her kicking ass and doing all those things. And, and then I'd say finally, and this is just a personal thing for me, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, there were, and I'm Jewish, there weren't a lot of Jewish heroes, man. We were told we weren't good at sports. We were told we weren't superheroes. And to see this Israeli girl up there kicking butt, man, it makes me proud. So uh, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I'll, I'll say one negative that has nothing to do with this movie in particular. But as as a parent, I I, I love, as a fan, I love the fact that there's, we're living in a media age that we only dreamed of when we were kids, that you could have comic book action on the screen that it would look convincing and be fun um and 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 delve into the comics and they could feed into each other so we're like living in a paradise 
uh, island, if you will. Um, but what I will say is I am looking forward to hopefully sooner than later, there will be a comic book movie with a major character like Wonder Woman that I can take my six-year-old to. I would, I would like that to, I would like that to exist. If I could manifest that in the world, that's what I would do. Yeah, I have a five-year-old son and a nine-month-old son, so I wanted, I wanted to check it out first. I, I was pretty sure it'd be okay. Wonder so. Woman is no good for a nine-month-old. Definitely <laughs> don't. Or anybody else in the Definitely. room with a nine-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Chris. No, no. That's, <laughs> believe me. We would not put everybody else through that. Uh, he's patient, but not that patient. He's not quite there yet. But uh, no, I really enjoyed it a lot, too. And I thought the acting was great. I thought the story was very solid. It's one of the best DC movies I've seen. I agree with you since Superman 1. And uh, I also just like the crowd. I went on a Saturday night, so it wasn't really packed, but that's usual for any movie on a Saturday night after it comes out on Thursday. It's not any reflection of the movie itself, but there was a decent crowd. And one thing I heard that I normally don't hear in a movie theater is clapping at the end of it. Yep. People yep. actually applauding. My yeah. audience, they clapped it at a couple different points, and it didn't, never felt forced. It never felt it, – it felt like a genuine response to to the stuff that was happening on the screen, and that happened a couple times in, in my crowd. And then after the movie, just coming out, I would see young girls lined up getting their picture taken by their mom. They're all like really happy. So it was really a family type thing. I mean, just seeing young women really happy to see it. And I enjoyed it so much. And I, I agree with you. I would go out to the sequel immediately. And I even, I don't know if anyone saw the trailer for Justice League coming up. Even that trailer before Wonder Woman was on the screen, just showing that. I felt more positive about that because it looks like some adjustments have been made. At least it seems a little more fun. And this film definitely had more fun, although yet serious. It was not a – they didn't play for laughs. They didn't cheapen anything by just trying to force in humor. It was all very well handled. You know, It wasn't really uh, Georg Gadot's character trying to be funny at all. I mean that wasn't how they played it. She was the straight, she was the straight man, so to yes, speak. Yes, yes. Yeah, that, uh, that works. And to your point, look, I mean, I will be the first to take my hat off to Chris Nolan and all the Batman movies and sure. thought he captured a really great tone to it. But not all the movies need to be that tone. And I think what they, no. they tried to do that, they started to go to a dark place. And you were talking about this, Dennis, earlier. It's like, you know, Superman killing someone and all these things. It was just it got, you know, like everything had to be so dark. So to have this movie that had some darkness in it, but in itself and its spirit was light mm. and fun and about the big, you know, big superhero adventure was awesome. So they captured the right tone, and I hope they do that in Justice League too because, you know, look, it's it's good for all. You know, I, I never understood yep, this, yep. me personally. I, growing up as a kid, I was DC and Marvel. There was no – you read comics, man. Yep. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You read them all. So I'm rooting for all the comic books companies to do well and all the movies to do well because this is what we do, not only do, but it's what we love. So yep. I hope for, they find the success they need moving forward. And I think Wonder Woman's a step in that right direction. I've never understood the idea of a group of stories. I mean, one of the great things about reading Marvel comics, specifically in the 80s as a kid, is that the Thor comic and the Daredevil comic was different from the Spider-Man comic, was different from the Captain America comic, different from the X-Men comic, all different in tone and approach. And then every once in a while, you had something like Secret Wars, and it was almost like all all the fish out of water carrying the, their water with them into this new story and seeing how they um seeing how they would uh conflict uh, because you you had when you had the x-men and wolverine and captain america is there and they're arguing because of course they do and other characters getting along that was like a special event but the individual characters the individual stories could go and do their own thing and have their own tone and I, I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't mind living in a world where the Batman movies were a little bit darker, and a little bit more, um, you know, serious. And the Superman movie, the Wonder Woman movie, was more happy and and, and uplifting. And uh, and then, you know, when they get together, they can crack jokes off of Batman, how he's so, you know, stoic and whatever. And that that works for me. And uh, I, I hope that we can we can move more in, in that direction. Because I, I I like that direction. Yeah, Marvel's managed to capture a different tone for each of their movies. And Doctor I, Strange is very different yes. from you know Captain America. I like the fact that Winter Soldier was a sort of a hardcore Cold War 
uh, espionage movie almost. And Doctor Strange was this was this was this uh, what, what's the word odd? I'm kidding. Strange <laughs> world. Uh, it's just so weird, like falling into a, a into a 1960s uh, you know black light lamp poster. I love that. Um, so let's 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 mix it up more. And and that's sort of to bring it back. I mean, that's what Aftershock is doing. Every every one of Aftershock's titles is different from each other. They're all interesting in and of themselves. Um, uh, I, I I remember when we were doing interviews about the X Men the, the noir books, and someone asked uh, someone asked like me and Fred Van Lente, the great Fred Van Lente, uh, they asked us um, what universe does this take? You know, Daredevil and and X-Men War and all these books, do they take place in the same universe? What universe is that? And we're like, we don't know. The fictional universe where fictional things that aren't true are happening. We're just telling our story. You know, we're not worried about that stuff has to, I think, me personally, my point of view, that stuff has to come second. Because a, a group a, a, a group of stories that are interlinked, that are not interesting, is always going to be less popular, less successful from an artistic point of view, um, than a group of stories that may may or may not be interconnected, but they're all individually interesting and have integrity and are done well with the idea of doing good stories. Thank you. I will get off my pedestal now. <laughs> I just have some questions for fun. These are not related to comics per se. Just uh, just to get to know you all a little better. Um, I ask these questions of all my guests. Mike, I'll start with you. So the rest of you get to hear the question first. You can think about it. Mike, what do you like <laughs> to do when you have an opportunity? What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Uh, I have a very crappy boat, um, and I like to get on that crappy boat and just ride around when the weather's good and clear the head. And I just there's something about being on the water, which is very soothing and relaxing. Um, so I love doing that and I bring my little girl out with me and we have a great time, do mini golf and get ice cream and everything. Uh, so that, that's, that's what I do. Great. Adam. God, after Mike's, that's a hard one to follow. <laughs> I was going to say, I just get drunk and pass out. But, yeah, uh, well, ding, that's, ding, a, ding. that's a given. We're in comics. <laughs> yeah, we work on it. He puts his little girl to sleep, then he does that. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, of course, of course, of course. Safety I mean, first. look, I, you know, it's like, I think you're, you know, as I, I get older, I just realize, like, life is really about certain times in your life. Like, I always say that, like, growing up in New York, I go back to New York. New York's no longer a place. It's a time for me, you know. Uh, and I'm sort of in that point, too, where I think we all are, which is I have kids, so – I don't have what you call a free moment or relaxing time. <laughs> I, uh, every moment I, I have that I'm not working, I, I'm with my family. But within that, I, I find not only my peace, but my strength. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, it's funny. I used to be read comics, but I, you know, I don't have time really to read comics anymore. So, uh, you know, every once in a while I get to read a book. You know, those are coming rare and far in between. I promise myself to read at least one a year or two a year if I can get to it. And that seems to always happen at Christmas break when we take a long flight for a trip or something someplace. Uh, I get that done. But for the most part, man, it's really just sort of hanging with my kids as long as I have them and they're in my life. And because I know they're going to, you know, especially I got a 16 year old should be out the door soon. So uh, that's what I do with my free time. I understand. It goes by very quickly. As I was saying, I have a, a five year old and a nine month old. And I have a 22-year-old. So, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's – wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. Starting Impressive. The <laughs> yeah. Pop is a rolling stone. Look at you. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah. uh, 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 I, I joked with my wife. I said, he'll be out of diapers and you'll be putting me into him by the time this kid gets yeah. <laughs> Dennis, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? What that? You know, I, I saw Paul McCartney once say in an interview that being rich is – Getting up and doing what you would do if you didn't have to work, which is what I do. Um, I write. I, I further my other ambitions. I'm taking a film class now as well, directing a short short film. And uh, I'm, I'm doing all these things that I've always wanted to do. Uh, I watch movies. I enjoy, as you may have gathered, I enjoy 
film. And, uh, and as, um, as Adam very eloquently put, I find a strength in my family. I find strength in, in my wife. I find strength in my daughter. Uh, and I spend time with her. And, uh, and uh, we're actually making a little short film together that my daughter's going to be in. Not because I have any sort of ambition to have her uh, you know, be a Lindsay Lohan, God forbid. Um, but, uh, but because she's interested and uh, we, we watch movies together and, and TV together. And she asks questions and she knows what a crossover is and she understands what a teaser is. And just, you know, I just because my attitude in parenting has always been if she's old enough to ask, she's old enough to have an answer. Um, so we do that a lot. And um, I'm trying to find a way every day to have uh, to, to push forward, you know, because we, we we're ambitious people. We have goals. To push forward those goals, but to find time to have a little bit of joy, a little bit of fun. Um, luckily, I still enjoy drawing. I still enjoy writing. I enjoy doing working with these guys and guys like them and gals as well. Um, so, yeah. So, not so much fun. No, it's okay. <laughs> That's a terrible answer. <laughs> I do. I, I guess I'm saying I like what I do, so I just do more of it. So that's fine. Okay. <laughs> now my second question is, and Adam, we'll start with you. If you were on an island, stuck on an island, what is the one book you would want to have with you? And it can be a set of books if it's part of a collection. But there's no electricity, so it's not an iPad or a Kindle. Uh, an island that I was stuck on. A yeah. Book that I have to have. You know, it was really interesting. I, I know this is going to sound like a crappy, actually, answer, but, uh, you know, a book that really influenced me as a kid was um, uh, Fountainhead, and uh, I really related to that book, and I remember it was really sort of the first time I sort of read something and thought to myself, okay, you know, um, I'm Rourke, <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm this kid who's, you know, got nothing, and I want to be a rock star, you know, and, and it, in his book, in Fountainhead, it's, you know, it's the of uh, the architect, but you know, um, but yeah, Anne Rand's Fountainhead really, really, you know, Howard Rourke and sort of you know being a young architect and refusing to compromise your artistic, you know, thing really spoke to me, and so that book was super important to me. And I'll admit I haven't read it in about twenty years, so part of it would be you know I want to reread it again with these older eyes and see if I still thought it was as great as I did when I was younger. So uh, that would probably be the book for me. Mike, do you have one? Yeah, you know, I think my answer would be different at different stages in my life. Um, I'd have to say the Harry Potter series of books, uh, which I'm kind of, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of surprised <laughs> I'm even saying that. Uh, but uh, you know, in, in my adult life, I think that's the thing that has come closest to feeling like the wonder of comic books when I was a child. Um, sure. And, you know, just building a whole world and the complexity of the characters and, um, the depth of the characters, uh, and having something that's, I can, I, I can talk to my grandmother about, or I can talk to my daughter about, and we can have intelligent conversations about that same book or series of books. Um, you know, that, that, that means a lot to me. So yeah, I, I think I would go with that. Dennis, do you have one? Well, uh, a question, is there booze on this Island? Ah, <laughs> that is my third question. Yeah. Uh, okay. okay. I, well, honest yeah. to God, I'm getting to that question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So if I had to choose one book, it's going to be a strange answer, but the, 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 I, I've read a lot of books. I enjoy them very much, so it would be it would be difficult to choose between, you know, a collection of H.P. Lovecraft or Edgar Allan Poe or Stephen King, or Ian Fleming. There's so you know, there's just so many. I think if I had to if I had to choose, because this, this is obviously an impossible question, so I'll, I'll answer it. Um, I'd probably choose Washington Square by Henry James. It's it's. I think that in my entire life, it is the most satisfying completely perfect overall read to me it is it is and there's others because obviously there's no there's no best book that's you know it's a, that's a crazy person thing to say there's no best book but there are very few books that are as 
perfectly moving, perfectly constructed, perfectly written, perfectly paced. It is a perfect book. Um, and one of my favorites. So I, if I had to choose one, I would choose that one. And anyone who has never read it should, should read it because it's absolutely wonderful. And, and by the way, based on a true story, you know that, right? Yes, it's loosely based um, that, on a true story, yes. Yep, yes, I loved it. I, I remember when it came out, and uh, it came out in bits and pieces in Harper's Bazaar. I don't know if you remember this, in the 80s. And uh, that's how I discovered the book. Oh, what, are we talking about the same book? Uh, Washington Square by Henry James, yeah. released in 1880. They, they, they re-released it in Harper's Bazaar? Yes, and so that's you would read, read experts of it in the 80s, and... And oh, uh, my, my grandmother collected Har had Harper's Bazaar at her house, so that was the first time I read it. That's wonderful. Look at that. Oh, man. That's great. I'll have to check that out. Magazines, young people. <laughs> they were these things that we had. Magazines, they read they you would to come read out it. every month with with a thing called paper. It's paper. <laughs> it was horrible. We, we, we slaughtered trees so that we could share ideas. Terrible time, dark time. And my final question, and Dennis, I'll start with you. What is your beverage yes. of choice? Ah, complex question, my friend. Let me think. Let me think. I, I have several go-tos. Uh, I am very, as, as Chris, as you may know, I'm very into tiki drinks and tiki culture and all that stuff. Yes. Uh, I collect tiki mugs. Um, my favorite is the Nautilus from Disney World, which is which looks like the Nautilus, like a submarine, but it also looks like a Nautilus shell. So it's very clever and very beautiful. I find all of that stuff uh, very, uh, very pretty and, and relaxing. Um, I, I, I have to buck the trend. I can't answer with one. I have to give you a couple of go-to choices. <laughs> so there's, there's the Vesper, which is two parts gin, one part vodka, and half a part of Lille Blanc. I like to put a little sparkling wine on top, and it becomes a Vesper Royale. Inspired by, uh, it was in, in Ian Fleming's first James Bond novel, Casino Royale. Uh, the French Martini is also wonderful, which is vodka, pineapple juice, and Chambord. Also a little sparkling wine on top of that. Ain't bad. Uh, and then the Zombie, which is the, which is the prototypical, the archetypal uh, tiki drink, which is just like three different kinds of rum with fruit juices and spices, and it's wonderful. Um, so I could not choose between those three, but those are... Those are those are the top ones for me. Okay, I drink a lot, people. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. I'm an alcoholic. It keeps me calm. Believe me, everyone's happier that way. <laughs> Adam, how about you? You know, I'm a straight alcohol kind of guy. I just cut right to it. So, uh, you know, if you on a happy day, I'm drinking tequila and it's a Don Julio 1942. I also like the Casa, you know, Dragons. Uh, you know, if I'm in a Scotch mood, it's a Johnny Walker Blue. Uh, if it's vodka, which you know, no time's bad day for vodka. I, I'm a great goose. On the great goose on the rocks with a, a, with a splash of lime, you know. But always straight, like it, sip it. Um, it's good. Uh, I keep it to the weekends. So that my wife doesn't divorce me. Um, <laughs> all good, man. All good. Happy wife, happy life. Yes, sir. <laughs> Mike, how about you? Well, the end, the, 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 the end of my day always ends uh, similar to Dennis and Adam's descriptions. Uh, I do have to, you know, give an honorary mention to how I start my day with some juice always got to have my juice in the morning uh usually orange and uh and of course a very large large coffee um, oh yes when i get into my fun recreational relaxing uh, uh part of my day um usually one ipa is great i love sierra nevada i love stone um mm. i love An anchor steam dales um but then I, the majority of my time, I would say, is spent uh, enjoying what my girlfriend refers to as night juice. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, night, night juice is usually uh, some form of red wine. Um, and it, it, it depends what mood I'm in or, or what month it is. But uh, usually a, a Pinot Noir uh, 
Cabernet. Um, I think right now I'm drinking a Pinot Noir while I'm talking to you guys. Man, all good choices. And I, I hear you on the IPA, one IPA. Because if you have more than one, yeah, I, I eat that one, one and yeah, and, and yeah, it gets me too tired these days and uh, goes straight to my gut. So I gotta, yeah, I gotta. Dude, that's why. Anytime I, I, I want to have a creative or business conversation with Mike, this is why I call him around this time every day. <laughs> sure, whatever you want. Sounds good. I mentioned this in the podcast before. And I don't want to get give people the wrong impression of me, but when I went to go see uh, Rogue One in the movie theater, they have a bar. So I got myself a nice drink of, of a beer, just a, just a lager. And uh, I said, oh, I think I'll have another one. So I went out and I said, I'll have a Golden Monkey. And um, they're, they're pretty strong. And it wasn't a 16-ounce pour. It was a nice big cup, like 20-some ounces. And I'm waking up and there's this fight scene going on in the movie. I'm like, I missed some of that? Like, I just I just like nodded right off. And I was like, oh, my God, how am I missing this? So... Yeah, when I saw it the second time, there were things like, I, I, yeah, I vaguely remember this happening. So now I just, I take it easy. One, you know, or just a lager, you know, no IPAs. <laughs> so, you know, I, so you get to an age where if you drink too much beer in a movie, you're going and peeing all the time. So yeah, I stayed, I stayed at the straight liquor when I uh, went to the movie theater. Kids, anyway, don't drink. Don't drink. It's bad beer. for you. Bad. And don't drink beer at movies because you'll have to go to the bathroom and you'll miss the movie. Uh, by the way, all I think about all the time is can you, you like if my old man could have gotten booze when I was a kid, he would have been so happy you know, at a movie theater. And we could even do that now is awesome. Yeah, it is. It's like, I don't need popcorn. That's too expensive. I don't need all that big soda. Oh, they have a bar? Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't have to bring my flask in with me. This will awesome. make this will make Alien Covenant go down smooth. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thanks so much. Before we go, anything uh, you want to share about appearances, con appearances, events, anything you want to just plug before we go? Uh, we'll start with um, with you, Dennis. Are you going to making any appearances? Um, I'll be at NYCC for sure. Uh, I will not be on at, at SDCC this year, unfortunately, because it, it, it's my parenting weekend, and I try not to. Uh, shift it around too much it just makes it too complex for everybody so um that that's for sure and i'm sure there'll be some small regional shows you can always go to dennisclero.com for the latest news on me thank you all right adam i'll definitely be at sdcc i don't know if i'll be doing anything there but uh you can find me at the bar just to keep up with our uh drinking <laughs> and i'll be there probably uh, buying mike marts a beer um, <laughs> and then I, I do plan to go into NYCC um, because I think it's always a great um, con for Aftershock and I want to continue to support them and their growing uh, empire. All right. Mike, are you going to be able to uh, get out and attend a few uh, cons? Yes, indeed. So Aftershock will be at Heroes Con, um, which is coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, I won't be there, but a few of our other people will. Um, we'll be attending the ID10T festival in Palo Alto, which is Chris Hardwick's, uh, festival of comics, music, technology, and comedy. Um, so that's going to be a first one for us. It should be a lot of fun. Um, and we'll be at San Diego comic-con. We won't have a booth, but Aftershock will be there. Um, and then we will, also be doing Baltimore in September and, of course, New York Comic Con in October, like Adam mentioned. All right. Well, this has been great, guys. We've been talking the normals with Adam Glass, Dennis Clara, and Mike Martz. We've also been talking Thank alcohol. you so much. We've been talking alcohol, too. Thank you. Have a yeah, great thank night. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. All right, well, that was a lot of fun. That was my interview with Adam Glass, Dennis Calero, and Editor-in-Chief Mike Martz of Aftershock Comics. Now, look, the clinking in the background, the sound of glass pouring, that was not me. I was not drinking during the podcast. I only drink coconut water, occasionally a glass of wine, but coconut water for me to stay hydrated and clear on the podcast. Now, by the time you hear this, Heroes Con will have come and gone. Will I have some interviews from that con? Maybe. Watch this space, creatortalks.com, and follow me on Facebook and Twitter at creatortalkspod. That's at creatortalkspod. Maybe I'll have some videos also recorded and on the website, creatortalks.com, for you to view, as well as audio podcast interviews for your listening pleasure. 
I really like this format of having multiple guests on the show and speaking with them. I'm still going to have individual guests, of course, but I'm going to try really hard more and more to have two or three, heck, sometimes four, but I think three is a sweet spot, two more likely. What do you think? Let me know your thoughts at Creator Talks Pod. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And rate and write a review on iTunes and Stitcher. It goes a long way and really helps a lot. Thank you so much for following me on Twitter and putting out the good word. I'm talking to you, Kyle and Leah. I am working hard to bring you more great and interesting interviews. Okay, well, that's enough podcasting for one evening. My executive producer would like me to wrap it up and get back to life with the fam. So, for Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.